Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, April 29th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report that will have dispatches on the continuing clashes in the Republic of Sudan between the two military structures, the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces. There has been a demonstration in the West African state of Mali demanding the withdrawal of United Nations peacekeeping forces from that country. Tunisia and North Africa is reporting that over 200 bodies of migrants have been washed up off the Mediterranean coast. And the Republic of Congo Brazzaville has announced the formation of a joint economic project to develop its natural gas resources. In the second and third hours, we continue our coverage of the Sudan security crisis. We will examine the humanitarian situation along with the efforts to bring about a permanent ceasefire. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, in Congo, Brazzaville, with the orchestra Sili Bishu. Let's listen in. <laughs> Je 
la
Yeah. 
dessus, oh ma belle, je suis fâché, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, oh ma belle, je veux mourir, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, oh ma belle, je suis fâché, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, c'est à cause de toi, je veux mourir, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, c'est à cause de toi, je veux souffrir, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, oh ma belle, je veux mourir, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, oh ma belle, je suis fâché, oh ma belle, je suis dessus, c'est à cause de toi, je veux mourir. C'est à cause de toi je vais souffrir. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. Oh ma belle je suis fâché. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. Oh ma belle je suis fâché. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. Oh ma belle je vais mourir. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. Oh ma belle je suis fâché. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. Oh ma belle je vais mourir. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. C'est à cause de toi je vais mourir. Oh ma belle je suis dessus. C'est à cause de toi je vais mourir. Oh ma belle je suis Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis dessus. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis dessus. C'est à cause de toi, je veux souffrir. Oh ma belle, je suis dessus. Tout le monde est attaqué. Oh ma belle, je suis dessus. Tout le monde est attaqué.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, music from uh, the Republic of Congo, uh, Brazzaville. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, on this Saturday, April the 29th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, Medical staff working at the All Now Hospital in Abdurman, uh, Sudan, have complained of lack of resources as they struggle to deal with the influx of patients. There's a huge lack in the medical teams and a huge lack in the hospital facilities. Uh, In normal circumstances, there are teams. Now the shift is longer as not enough doctors exist. Uh, there are only two doctors or one doctor who covers one or two departments and sometimes three departments, says Dr. Allah Muhammad, a doctor at the Al Now Hospital. 
Volunteers uh, at the facility also complained there was no fuel for ambulances and the dialysis department was lacking in resources. At least 512 people, including civilians and combatants, have been killed uh, since April the 15th, with another 4,200 wounded, according to the Sudanese uh, Health Ministry. The doctor's uh, syndicate, uh, which tracks civilian casualties, has recorded at least 387 civilians killed and 1,928 wounded. And uh, other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent in the West African state of Mali. Hundreds gathered uh, yesterday in the capital of Bamako to call for the MINUSMA, the United Nations peacekeeping mission in West Africa, to leave. Protesters uh, responded to a call by local political and activist groups uh, close to the country's military junta to attend uh, the protest meeting. The protesters, many waving Russian flags, say the UN peacekeepers' decades-long presence is no longer required. Mali, uh, ruled by a military junta since a first coup in 2020, is battling uh, armed groups linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State organization with the help of uh, Russian uh, Wagner Group, uh, the Military Services Corporation. The demonstrations in Mali come at a time when the Malian army has suffered one of the largest attacks by the armed jihadist groups in central regions of the country, and when the uh, UN peacekeeping forces, uh, human rights reports frequently accuse the Malian army of uh, rights violations. Uh, the military government uh, supported uh, anti-United Nations tensions seem set to continue to rise with presidential elections that are set uh, for next year, uh, which some might not want to be analyzed too carefully by neutral observers or peacekeepers. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal in the North African state of Tunisia, Coast Guards uh, say uh, it has recovered around 210 bodies of migrants under two weeks that have washed up on the North African country's central coastline amid an ongoing increase in migration. Preliminary examinations of the bodies indicated that the migrants were from several countries. The number of bodies recovered was announced uh, yesterday. Of the 210 dead, Migrants found over 20, 10 days starting on April the 18th. About 70 of those were recovered from beaches in eastern Esfax, the neighboring Kitker Canal Islands, and the Maya, according to Prosecutor Fausi Masmudi, uh, who oversees migration issues. These three areas are starting points for most attempts to migrate to the Italian coast, including onward to the remote island of Lapandusa. He added, the increasing number of dead migrants has overwhelmed the Habib Bourguiba Hospital morgue in Sesfax, uh, the capacity of which is 30 to 40 bodies. To ease the pressure on hospitals, local authorities are working to speed up the burial of the victims after carrying out DNA tests and possible identification by relatives, Masmudi said. Rapan Ben Amor, a spokesperson for the Tunisian Forum for Economic and Social Rights and non-governmental organizations specializing in migration issues, said uh, that local authorities had last year committed themselves to setting up a special cemetery for migrants on the grounds that they are not Muslims. 
but are more sad that this is still not ready, leading to the difficulties in finding borough places. Following a visit earlier this week uh, by European Commissioner for Home Affairs, Yvonne Johansson, the Tunisian Foreign Ministry said in a statement Thursday that Tunisia and the European Union agreed to promote voluntary return of sub-Saharan migrants to their countries of origin. During her stay, the European Union official met with Tunisian Foreign Minister Nabil Amar, Interior Minister Kamel Feke, and Social Affairs Minister Malik Izai. Migration uh, to Europe has been on an upward climb, peaking in 2022 to 189,620 persons, according to the International Organization for Migration. That's the most since 2016, when close to 400,000 left their homeland, and one year after more than 1 million people, mostly Syrians, fleeing war, sought refuge during 2015. For many Africans who don't need a visa to travel to Tunisia, the North African country serves as a stepping stone to Europe, while others come from Libya, which shares a border with Tunisia. And finally, in the uh, Republic of Congo, Brazzaville, in a significant development for the energy sector, the President of the Republic of Congo, uh, Denis Sasso Ngueso, and Claudio Descalzi, uh, CEO of the global energy major ENI, gathered on April 25th to lay the foundation stone for the Congo Liquefied Natural Gas Project. This groundbreaking initiative represents the country's inaugural venture into natural gas liquefaction and serves as a crucial diversification strategy for ENI. With a projected annual output of 3 million tons, equivalent to approximately 4.5 billion cubic meters per year by 2025, the project holds immense potential for the Republic of Congo's energy sector. The project includes an accelerated development schedule and a zero-flaring approach, comprising the installation of two floating liquefied natural gas plants, uh, which uh, will process gas from the Nini and Lichenjil fields already in production, as well as any new fields that come online. The FLNG vessels uh, will have a production capacity of 0.6 million tons per annum and 2.4 per annum and will begin production in 2023 and 2025, respectively. The African Energy Chamber, as the voice of the African energy sector, supports the project as it represents a significant step towards achieving energy security in Africa by leveraging natural gas resources. Congo's liquefied natural gas will play a pivotal role in meeting the energy needs of the Republic of Congo while also bolstering economic growth and offering viable export opportunities. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in closing uh, this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, It is designed uh, to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. 
If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our website, uh, and that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, Worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, April 29, 2023. All you need to do is go to the Pan African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, uh, worldwide radio broadcast. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week. I 
by tenuous truces nearly two weeks on in Sudan no clear winner in sight yet the personal power play between rival generals showing all the signs it could spiral into all-out civil war there's the big prize the capital Khartoum and as you can see from these images there's also Darfur uh, tens of thousands have uh, fled there for neighboring Chad are also internally displaced as armed factions choose uh, which uh, uh, choose sides while local rivalries and banditry even flares up. How to stop the spiral? Who to stop it? Once the final foreigners have been evacuated, the international community will ignore at its own risk the plight of a diverse nation of 45 million that's bravely been fighting for a return to civilian rule these last four years. How many of the best and brightest will instead now be trying their luck crossing the Mediterranean this summer if that spiral is not stopped? today in the France 24 debate, how to prevent an all-out civil war. And uh, with us here in the studio, activist uh, Ghaffar Mohamedou Sainin. Thanks, thanks for being back with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. From Northampton, Massachusetts, Eric Reeves, Sudan researcher at the Rift Valley Institute. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you. We uh, hope to get uh, through to uh, Khartoum. We had uh, hope to reach uh, Amjad Farid, uh, however... One of the difficulties is uh, electricity right now uh, in the Sudanese capital, and that means it's sometimes difficult uh, to have a connection. The France 24 debate on Facebook and uh, Instagram, Twitter, the hashtag is F24 debate. 
French fresh airstrikes this Thursday in the capital. Some uh, 16,000, according to Cairo, who fled north to neighboring Egypt. And tens of thousands either displaced inside of Darfur or, again, fleeing to neighboring Chad. Darfur, always on edge, two decades after a brutal civil war first erupted there. Brian Quinn has more. Just across the border from Sudan, this refugee camp has become a new temporary home. These are just some of the thousands of Sudanese who have come to neighboring Chad after fleeing the violence in their home country. Armed men came to our compound and asked us to leave. We left in a hurry on a donkey to come here. I got separated from my seven children and I can't find them. As residential areas, particularly in the capital Khartoum and neighboring Omdurman, remain shuttered amid ongoing fighting between the Sudanese army and its rival, the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary, food, water and electricity have become increasingly scarce. Crowds desperate to escape have gathered at border crossings with Egypt and at the Red Sea city of Port Sudan. But it's Chad that looks likely to take the brunt of the exodus. The people are, uh, are really very much in need. They are too close to the border. They need to be relocated. For the moment, we are working with a 20,000 refugees uh, operational figure, but we are planning for up to 100,000 worst-case scenarios. As chaos reigns in Sudan, sectarian and ethnic violence appear to be returning to its Darfur region, site of a genocide in 2003 and 2004 that left some 300,000 people dead. Chad's limited resources are already strained from hosting 400,000 Sudanese refugees who fled that earlier conflict. Before we talk about the capital, Ghaffar Mohamed Hussainin, you're from Darfur. What, what news do you have uh, from, uh, from there? Well, the latest news that we are getting from there is the situation is still uh, going from bad to worse as uh, the violence spree escalated in there. So uh, Niala, Al-Fashir, the, the two provincial capital, is slightly uh, calmer, but the situation in the area of West Darfur, namely Jinena, has been aggravated in the last two, three days. Yeah, are... We showed those, Im those images, uh, thanks to social media, of uh, 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 airstrikes in Al, uh, Al uh, I don't it is air strike or you can say artillery shelling mm. uh, just a spree of killing by this uh, the, 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 the heavy the, mortar shelling with yeah light, heavy light mortar weapons. shelling by the by, by the militias looting burning uh, entering you know the, 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 the citizens house roping in uh, broad daylight so the situation became very very dangerous in the area of Algenena and this has prompted the sultan of the Masali to call uh, the Chadian forces to intervene immediately to save, uh, to, to protect the citizens in there. So what is happening in Jinena is, is, is just another cycle of, uh, of, of, of uh, genocide, the episode. And do you see Chadian forces crossing the border? I don't think, but because this is, it came out of the desperation because the, he was... Uh, the sultan, the local leaders, they are helpless because among these 150 people so far confirmed are dead, you have the, 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 the medical uh, the, the workers, nurses, civil servants. So many people have been killed. This 
the, 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 so far 150 has been counted, but it's still uh, the, the, the many uh, dead bodies on the, on, the, on, the, on the street. A so, week ago, when you were uh, with us on this very set, it was a personal power play between the head of Junta, Al-Buran, General Al-Buran, and his nominal number two, Hemeti, the head of the Rapid Support Forces. Um, is it the same case today when you look at Darfur, or are there yeah, other players? I think it is the same case, because what's happening in Khartoum is linked to what is happening in Jinena, because Jinena, uh, uh, the, the area that, you know, uh, mostly uh, populated by the, by the, by this, uh, the, the rubbish support forces and the, uh, the, the, the Arab nomads who were affiliated with uh, the rubbish support forces. So the, the natural reaction of what is happening in Khartoum, because Jinena, the first, uh, the, 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 the 15th of uh, April, when the... Because the concern that week ago was the longer it goes on, the more it becomes an ethnic conflict, a tribal yeah, conflict. Yeah, that's, the, 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 that's what has been said, and uh, the longer it takes, and it became difficult to, 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 to manage. And, and now it's scaling beyond the borders, as we see Jinena, because only you uh, take a few hundred uh, meters from Jinena, you will fall on the other side of the, of the, of the another country, Tashad. And a uh, few miles to the, to the south of Jinena, uh, S S Republic of Central Africa. So the longer it takes, and the more it uh, became a violence. And now, what we are seeing now, as a result of now, the battle is not being, you know, uh, decided in Khartoum. Until the battle is decided in Khartoum, we don't know what is going to happen tomorrow, but what we are seeing, things are heading toward very, very dangerous, because now this is, has uh, prompted uh, the, the, the inhabitants of like a city of like Al-Fashir and Niala to dig up trench. Imagine the, the, the citizens, the people, they have to dig up trench to protect themselves from the artilleries, from the, the, this, uh, you know, uh, random uh, indiscriminate shelling. So what, we don't know what is going to happen, but the longer it takes and the more precarious it becomes. More precarious it becomes. Uh, Eric Reeves, a couple of points to pick up on there. Uh, first off, uh, at what point do you call it a civil war? I think we can call it a civil war now, or at least the beginning of a civil war. I think the conflict in Khartoum is sufficiently uh, violent. The sides are sufficiently well uh, decided that uh, what we're seeing in El Janet, to pick up on what Gaffar said, is that um, the, the same kinds of tensions that we can see between um, Hameti and uh, the traditional Arab head of the uh, Sudan Armed Forces is picked up by the ways in which the Masli, one of the important non-Arab tribes in, uh, in Darfur, uh, which has faced repeated attacks by the rapid support forces and allied Arab militias. That's, uh, that's the image of what we are seeing in Khartoum. And we haven't yet talked about other places, uh, El Abate, um, Eastern Sudan. These are all places where violence has been reported and could easily escalate uh, to a very, very dangerous level. Right, one final point uh, on Wednesday, on, on the issue of Darfur itself, Wednesday came news of the escape from prison of one of the key linchpins of Omar al-Bashir's uh, campaigns, uh, Ahmed Haroum. He's wanted on 
war crimes charges by the International Criminal Court. Most notably, he ran the Darfur security desk when he was interior minister. The junta refused to hand him over to the ICC after he was arrested in, in 2019. What was your reaction, Eric Reeves, when you heard that? It's a peculiar situation. We don't know exactly how these men were freed from Kobar prison, which is also where former President Omar al-Bashir was imprisoned. But it's not just Ahmed Haroun who was released, but Nafi Ali Nafi, uh, Ali Osman Taha, the uh, strong Islamist uh, former vice president. Uh, we're not quite sure where Islamists are going to come down in the conflict, but my guess is that both Hameti and Al-Burhan are seeking uh, political support from uh, the very strong remnants of the Islamist movement. And then both, 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 both are, are, are vying for it. I think uh, the, the situation of Ahmed Haroun, uh, he was not alone. He, he was Ali, Osman Muhammad Taha, Nafi Ali Nafi, the hardliners, they were allowed to leave Kobar prison uh, two days ago in north of Khartoum. And I think it's, it's also uh, important to remember that the importance of uh, Ahmed Haroun uh, as a key uh, player in the repression of that uh, the, the, the genocide. So is it, is it as, as Eric saying, both sides courting him to, have, to, to build up their alliances? Uh, uh, now, uh, the statement that was released by the Rabbi Support Forces, they're trying to blame the army intelligence of allowing, uh, of releasing these uh, the, the hardliners so that they can mobilize uh, the troops for them. But still, uh, there are many doubts on that. And the, on the other camp, uh, he pretends to fight the Islamists. So I don't see how he will go into Himeti. He will go into have uh, uh, the, the common ground with Ahmad Haroun, who, was, who used to have a differences with Ahmad Haroun. So it's, but, it's, it's a brutal situation, but also a bit of a chess game going on, and we're not quite sure who's who. Definitely, chess game is going on. We don't know quite sure. What is for certain is that, and you mentioned it, I want to pick up on the point you mentioned, that 12 days on, it's still a very imprecise science verifying claims on who's with whom, who controls what. Hamedi's rapid support forces, for instance, posting uh, the video we're about to show you, uh, claiming, this was on Tuesday, claiming to have taken the headquarters of the Sudanese Army Reserve Forces, that's in the capital, uh, Khartoum. We don't have confirmation on that. Maybe Eric Reeves does, but, uh, uh, but it's certainly, uh, to pick up on the point that Gaffar made earlier, Khartoum remains the prize. It does. And what I would stress at this moment is what an inveterate liar Ameti is. Uh, not just a liar, but an extravagant liar. He absolutely cannot be trusted, nor can Al-Burhan for that matter. But... Uh, Hemeti is raised lying to an art form, and nothing he says can be trusted. And one of the problems diplomacy has faced is that both men, both uh, generals, are not trustworthy. And yet the international community has found it expedient to put their faith in them and exclude, in effect, uh, the voices of civilians who want a democratic Sudan. Uh, the resistance committees, for example, are particularly strong and particularly opposed to both Al-Burhan and Hamasi. 
and yet their voices have not been heard at all in recent negotiations, uh, especially subsequent to the coup of October 2021. To, to, to pick up from where uh, uh, Professor Eric Reef left, uh, he met the, uh, he's not only trustworthy, but he's, uh, he's, he's, he's sued and considered by the, by the vast majority of the Sudanese is the most dangerous for the instability. And yet he's been the number two, number uh, two. for the last four years. So the number two, uh, what brought him to that position, I think the political parties, uh, the, 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 the force of freedom and change to play him because they are the one who negotiated with him when uh, the, this, uh, the, the revolution Bush Hemeti uh, and Burhan to the point where they have to uh, push away al-Bashir. Uh, and and, 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 and mm. this guy is just manipulative, and it's still what is really uh, is saddened for the Sudanese people, the international community, is still recognize him as an equal partner, even though Burhan represents uh, the, 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 the image of the, 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 the institution that who, who, who massacred many. And he's got international backers, it seems. Eric Reeves, a week ago, uh, there were those denials uh, of reports that he was getting uh, ammunition uh, from uh, uh, Libyan uh, rebel strongman uh, Halifa Haftar. Uh, he has uh, been the one sending mercenaries uh, to Yemen in the past. Uh, why is Hemeti have uh, such a strong backing? Well, it's a, uh, there are many reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, he fought in Yemen uh, at the behest of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Haftar is apparently uh, choosing sides probably prematurely and is, we have satellite evidence, clearly supplying uh, the rapid support forces, uh, as is the Wagner Group of, of Russia, which has very close ties to Hameti and to uh, Hameti's gold, uh, gold holdings, gold exports, which uh, go from Sudan to the United Arab Emirates, another player in the game, and then on to Russia. And in fact, Sudanese gold is now a major factor in funding Putin's war in the Ukraine. But gold has made Hamati extremely wealthy. In 2017, he captured the uh, Jebel Amir um, uh, gold mine in North Darfur. And from there, he has uh, built an empire. He's, he's arguably, uh, I would say, uh, almost certainly the richest man in yes. Sudan. And he knows how to use that wealth for power. And yes. Certainly, he's the most uh, richest man in Sudan, and this resources uh, has been accumulated in the last four years of the chaos. And that brings us to what was said a minute ago by Eric Reeves, which is how do you negotiate in these instances uh, a truce? You have uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, who in the past hour says they're working on rolling it over. Of course, the, the current truce uh, is, as we've described, in tatters in many parts. Uh, there are uh, the countries like Britain announcing in the last hour that they're relocating their embassy to uh, Ethiopia. Um, how do you uh, – is there any way to negotiate a ceasefire that can hold? It is impossible for them at the present moment because of the ceasefire – it's one side it is desperately fighting to survive. 
gamble on it, Metti. He thought it's going to be easy of uh, getting rid of all Burhan. But it's not just one side. I mean, we're hearing mm-hmm. we're hearing the sound of airstrikes yeah, in the capital, yeah, and we it, can presume it, that those are government the other air, side, air force. The other side, the other side, uh, what it is started has to finish. Otherwise, we're going to put uh, the, the Burhan in a very predictive situation. So the ceasefire, the truce, uh, it is impossible. The truce has been violated. The first truce has been uh, violated from the first day. The second, the th- on a, no, uh, we are on the third of the third truce, which has already failed from the beginning. So it is impossible for the meantime. Eric, Eric Reeves, do you agree? Uh, all evidence would suggest that this is a fight to the death, that Alperin having engaged with Hamethi is not going to let Hamethi reconstitute himself. One reason the truces have failed is that they would give Hamethi and his rapid support forces an opportunity to resupply, to receive some of what uh, Haftar and Libya has sent. Um, the Sudan armed forces has been, has perform very poorly. They have very few uh, troops on the street ferreting out uh, rapid support forces from the areas where they have really burrowed into communities and neighborhoods. Uh, they're intent, content to use air power and artillery and mortar fire, but that's not going to win this war. And uh, the longer it goes on, the more desperate both men are for some sort of victory. But if no victory is achievable, we have to begin to wonder about whether Sudan can survive as a state. Already, there's, there's really a tremendous disconnect between Khartoum and the peripheral areas, including Darfur, but also South Kordofan, the eastern states. Uh, it's, it's a highly chaotic situation, becoming more chaotic, more destructive, And really, the question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we respond to what is a looming, vast humanitarian catastrophe? Mm. How do we get food to people in a country that is very poor, has a tremendous malnutrition rate, especially among children? And coming back to the the issue of uh, truth and the ceasefire, I think for the first time, the Sudanese, because we, what we are reading from uh, from the from the from the people and the street, so there is sentiment of uh, a, a national mobilization to support, regardless of the the the, the, the army's chief position, to just get this war done as soon as possible. So, if Burhan, the risk will be if Burhan let him uh, to, to 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 escape from this his predicament. I think Burhan will be facing uh, trouble. So this is why I don't th- I don't see any prospect of uh, the, 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 the peace coming from uh, you know the, from the army position. At this point in time, uh, food running low in the capital, uh, and also uh, a, a new concern that's been flagged. And you just heard Eric Reeves uh, describe uh, Sudan as a state uh, starting to flag. Uh, there's the World Health Organization which is sounding the alarm. Uh, We've had days of no electricity in Khartoum, stranded personnel. That might mean that that, uh, uh, pharmacies running low, residents of the capital uh, wondering just how long they can endure urban warfare. In more than four or five days, there will be no supplies left. 
We're trying to provide fruits and vegetables and keep up the supply, but we've run out of grains, canned food, flour and sugar. I have chronic diseases, diabetes and hypertension. Since the beginning of the fighting, I haven't found an open pharmacy. Well, at this point, we can cross to Port Sudan and uh, say hello to uh, uh, Holud Hayer, founding director of uh, Confluence Advisory. Thank you for joining us here in, in, in the France 24 uh, debate. Uh, last time we spoke with you, you were in the capital. Tell, tell us uh, how you got to where you are now. Uh, well, it was quite an arduous journey, uh, something that takes usually 10 to 12 hours took upwards of 30 hours um, to reach Port uh, Sudan. And that's because there were many checkpoints on the road, but also because we traveled in quite a large convoy, um, so we had to have frequent stops. Um, what's interesting about the trip towards Port Sudan is that we saw a lot more paramilitary forces around the Khartoum area, and then further along in the east saw much more of a presence of the armed forces. But that just means that the clashes are more, more likely to migrate out of Khartoum eastwards as well, which means that the only safe route that exists now with the difficulties of getting into Egypt to the north, Ethiopia to the south, may soon be compromised. So the, 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 the fighting is spreading out. For now, where you are in Port Sudan, though, it's safe. It is quite safe. Um, the only issue is that, that we're already seeing signs of the war economy uh, spreading to Port Sudan. So we've seen facilitation fees for getting on the Saudi-sponsored uh, boats, which are free, um, range from around $100 to $600. Uh, we've seen petrol being scarce and prices shooting up. Um, even uh, central centralized banking systems, which are down banks which have been closed have impacted the level of liquidity that people have, therefore causing a rise in inflation. Uh, the number of people coming in from Khartoum is increasing, which is going to put pressure on uh, the already limited public services in uh, Red Sea, as well as provisions of food and etc. Et yeah, by land, by sea, as you mentioned, Holu, they're evacuating. Uh, in Port Sudan, we've seen French ships, we've seen Chinese ships, which uh, have so far evacuated more than 1,300 of their citizens before ferrying them across the Red Sea uh, to Jeddah uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia, China, which is uh, Sudan's largest uh, trading uh, partner. Um, uh, Halud Hayir, um, your thoughts on the focus of the international community uh, being on these evacuations? I think it's, it's unsurprising, frankly, but it is still quite disappointing. Um, what we know from the ways in which Bashir and his legacy in Burhan and Hemeti and the playbook that was forged by Bashir, we know that as soon as international eyes and ears can no longer bear witness to the regime's abuses, those abuses tend to skyrocket. So firstly, the absence of international observers on the ground is going to impact the humanitarian situation and the human rights situation. But beyond that, all of the air, all of the oxygen in capitals right now is focused on evacuation, with very little attention being placed on um, what kind of efforts can be put towards ending the conflict and meeting humanitarian um, needs. For example, all of these flights and ships that come in to take um, foreigners away, why aren't they laden with aid um, for the people of Sudan to ensure that they are also able to access 
as one of your interviewees just said, insulin, hypertension medicine, things that are in very short supply. And uh, there's even at this point in time been uh, a little bit of skirmishing between Western chancelleries. Uh, we saw uh, the Germans criticize uh, Britain uh, when last Saturday they evacuated uh, their embassy staff first. Germany's defense minister was asked Monday uh, why Britain had already managed to get that embassy staff out. He seemed to uh, suggest a, a bit of a cavalier attitude on the part of London. Britain was there so early because, how can I phrase this diplomatically, they overrode what the Sudanese had stipulated. And by the way, on the heels of that, now comes German irritation over Britain's Tuesday landing of its first plane to evacuate from a military base outside Khartoum without first negotiating with the Sudanese military. The BBC quoting one source that claims that having landed without permission, the British had to pay the army before leaving and negotiations to use the airfield meant that German rescuers lost half a day. Uh, the, 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 what was your reaction to, uh, to, this, uh, to this spat between Germany and Britain? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I can't say what uh, this uh, the reaction between these uh, great forces. Uh, each one of the forces, uh, the, uh, they are focusing on evacuating their citizen, while uh, we are left to just suffer in just these uh, circumstances. And 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 they, there are many desperate. Um, the Sudanese are left behind to struggle because there are many people who wanted to leave immediately. But they can't leave it because of their passport either are being, uh, you know, the, the, um, the embassies, they just shut their, uh, the embassy and just uh, run away. And there are many as well, many hundreds of thousands are stuck on the borders where the situation is very chaotic and became a critical on the border of Egypt, where the other foreigners, uh, the EUs, the Europeans, the, 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 the Gulf states were allowed to in but the Sudanese have to queue up for entry visa while they are fleeing from, uh, from, from war. So it is quite, uh, you know, hypocritical, uh, you know, to see this, the Western and the international community who used to, you know, uh, came for this, uh, to be part of this Sudan's problem, who were just left to suffer. And, 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 and I'm not surprised this, 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 uh, this contradiction why these people... Uh, the, the, the Germans are criticizing the British. Holud Hayir, you have the floor. Tell uh, our viewers who are in France, in Britain, uh, in the United States and other parts, uh, why what's happening to ordinary Sudanese matters. Well, because they're the people that have been left behind. And in many ways, you know, the, the ways in which this conflict um, has come about is in large part due to the way in which the political process um, has unfolded. And that political process was led by the international community, by the very same countries now rushing to get their people out. And so the international community has a responsibility towards the Sudanese people, um, whom they forced into a political process that has had devastating consequences even before this conflict broke out, um, and have now effectively been left to fend for themselves. But it that wasn't the international community. Forgive me for interrupting, Halud. It wasn't the international community that, was, that in 2019 uh, said that there's going to be power sharing between the military 
and the civilians trying to make that transition after Omar al-Bashir's rule to uh, civilian uh, rule. Uh, that was something that was decided by the Sudanese themselves. The initial uh, power sharing in 2019 was decided through several different chains. Part of that was pressure from the international community because they didn't see a pathway towards uh, stability that did not include the general. Since 2019, where there was a massacre committed by the same generals currently fighting, the international community has never pursued any accountability for that, and it has forced the, um, to the civilians to accept rhetorical politics rather than and gestural politics rather than real commitment to democracy. Everyone in Sudan knew these were not the generals to shepherd in civilian democratic rule. Everyone knew that these generals had um, could come to blows and settle scores in the most disastrous way. And yet we were told the only way was um, to handhold these generals and gently, you know, um, frame them as reformers rather than, you know, the, the, the sort of single-minded, um, ambitious generals we know them to be. Eric Rees, is that your reading of uh, how we got to this point? I think um, that's an admirable summary of how we got to this point. And I would come back, though, to what strikes me as the most important issue here, with so much focus on evacuations and what's going on at Port Sudan or uh, what's happening um, in Egypt. Sudan is a country of 45 million people. Virtually all those people are going to be in Sudan when the humanitarian crisis peaks. And that's going to be food, medicine, and indeed, the idea that ships would come to Port Sudan laden with nothing, with no food, no medicine, is obscene. Uh, we are going to see in the very near future uh, catastrophic loss of life, catastrophic suffering. And it will be especially true in the peripheries, not just Khartoum, although Khartoum now is suffering, especially at the hands of the rapid support forces, which are behaving uh, with extreme brutality in many, many neighborhoods where they've hunkered down. But let's keep our eye on the largest problem here, which is how a country that is in the midst of a quasi-civil war, at least, will feed itself, will provide medicine, will provide any of the essential services that are necessary. So let me ask you, Eric, to play um, a U.S. correspondent here for a second. Uh, what is the calculus inside of the State Department? How does the United States see all of this? I'm afraid I have to say that the United States has for many years now viewed Sudan through either the lens of how can we get them to cooperate on counterterrorism or to try and make deals with the men who have guns. And the idea of re reaching a peace and a democratic transition with generals who are untrustworthy, who have extremely violent pasts. Uh, Hameti was the one who continued the genocide in Darfur from 2013 to the present. Um, I think back to a statement by Princeton Lyman, who was a former special envoy for the Sudans, who declared in an interview that 
We don't want to see regime change. This was in when al-Bashir was in power. We don't want to see regime change. We want to see this regime preside over democratic transformation of Sudan. I, I really can't think of a more disingenuous and preposterous assertion about what could be expected of al-Bashir. But this was the expedient way, and, it, and that expediency has been uh, the driver, I'm afraid, of U.S. policy for a very long time. Coming back to the, uh, the, the point of uh, the, the, the humanitarian catastrophe uh, uh, that now we are facing, I think, uh, like Eric rightly pointed, in the coming days, the situation even will be more aggravated for the the region of Darfur, especially because of the already uh, there is shortage, shortage of food, medicines, uh, the the first uh, the, the, the first necessities. So with this escalation, I think the the, the most victim is going to be Darfur. It's going to be suffering because of the uh, the, the, the the shortage of supply because the country has, at the moment has stand still. So the coming days, the things are going to be very difficult, tough. And how do you, how do you get supplies to Darfur while there's still fighting going on? What do yeah, you do? This, yeah, because uh, it's the only solution to, to just flee. Flee the cities, the villages, the town, toward uh, the nearest uh, the, 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 the point, uh, Chad, which is already uh, suffering so much because of the Darfur crisis in the last uh, 20 years or so. So this limbo and people they don't have a choice but to flee the nearest, you know the 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 the, the, the point is a chat. So this is why the international community I think is most is, is urgently uh, must take you know the necessary uh, action to focus on more humanitarian uh, the, 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 the situation than focusing on how and when the war is going to be end in Khartoum because the game. In Khartoum, is 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 you know unseen for the moment, for, uh, for the meantime. Haluda uh, Hayir, who, whose job is it to figure out how to feed Sudan in the midst of urban warfare? Haluda Hayir, yes, can you hear us? Halud, can you hear us? All right, we'll try to reconnect uh, with Halud uh, Hayer uh, in Port Sudan. What about the role of France in all of this, Steve? Uh, role of France, France. Chad is a former French colony. The uh, yeah, the longest uh, border uh, of Sudan have the Francophonian country, which is uh, 1,300 kilometers. France should be worried more than any other country because. The problem will be spilled over to Chad, uh, to other places, unless you know some concrete step has been taken by the uh, by, by the French. And there are insurgencies in Chad as well. Insurgencies in Chad. One of the questions put to us, and I'll put it to you, Eric Reeves, on the hashtag uh, F24 debate. Uh, it's by Salah. He says, does it feel like all the Ethiopian Tigray militiamen are just heading north to Sudan to find militiamen jobs? I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, uh, there is this feeling with uh, five of the seven countries that surround Sudan have uh, armed conflict in one form or another. 
Uh, does that mean that there are mercenaries for hire? Oh, yes. And indeed, uh, Hamethi has made a tremendous amount of money by hiring out his rapid support forces. It's one of the reasons they've grown to perhaps 100,000 at this point, uh, larger than the regular Sudan Armed Forces. Um, but Chad, it seems to me, is at least one avenue by which Darfur can be reached. The UN High Commission for Refugees uh, did a, a decent job initially with, in 2003-2004, but has since uh, really abandoned what, almost 400,000 people, and that number is going to grow dramatically. Uh, the UN and, and France and other countries should put pressure on President Debbie to allow humanitarian convoys through N'Djamena and to the border, uh, and perhaps even cross-border uh, transportation of critical supplies. Uh, uh, cross-border uh, humanitarian aid was not permit, has not been permitted, but these are desperate circumstances. And I think France should do everything it can. The UN should do everything it can. Countries with leverage uh, over Chad should do what they can to ensure that there, is, uh, there are humanitarian corridors. Um, securing humanitarian corridors inside Sudan would be much, much more difficult. But we're going to have to get food from Port Sudan to Darfur one way or another and to the other regions of the east and the south. Uh, that suffer as a consequence of the disintegration of the Sudanese economy along with uh, the state itself. I think the uh, international community uh, and you and, and this, uh, the, uh, the, 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 they must think of also putting uh, the forces of the, the civilian protection as well. So I think uh, the coming period, we don't know what is going to What are you suggesting, that there should be uh, blue helmets, that there should yes, be peacekeepers? Definitely, definitely places like the now, the, the, the massacre right now that is taking place in the places like Niala, uh, uh, the Jinena, tomorrow would be fall in Niala, after tomorrow would be fall in Al-Fashir. And the staffs that armed forces were unable to protect the civilian for the meantime, because all of them, they are trenched in their military installation to defend themselves from the attack. So this is pre-killing will lead to the, 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 the catastrophe and overall out on war, potential out on war that is going to be deadly. Therefore, I think there is amounts of, you know, uh, the, the, the weapons that have been uh, uh, transported from the places like Libya and other places. So I think I'm very, as a Darfurian, as a Sudanese, I'm more concerned, very concerned in the coming days. The thing will be... So international community and the great powers like France, and, and they, th they should think of option of, you know, pushing for the blue helmet, at least from the neighboring country of like a chat, you know. Eric Reeves, is that realistic? It's not realistic, I'm afraid. I, I hate to agree, uh, disagree with my good friend and colleague, but uh, after the failure of the UN African Union mission in Darfur, and it failed catastrophically, uh, and it was extremely difficult to get UN Security Council authorization, and no UN peacekeeping operation can be mounted without Security Council uh, authority. So I wholly agree with the desirability of blue helmets protecting convoys from Port Sudan uh, uh, to uh, Western and Southern areas, 
but it's just not going to happen. The failure of Unimed, the threat of a Chinese or Russian veto on the Security Council means that we're going to have to look at other forms of uh, providing security. And we know that the Wagner Group uh, is going to do all it can to obstruct uh, aid to Darfur and aid to, uh, to Khartoum. And is that the way that uh, the international community's attention gets uh, peaked uh, by talk of uh, the Russians, what with our focus here in Europe being on Ukraine and the standoff uh, with Russia there? Well, Russia, uh, I, I've seen a number of comments saying, leave Russia out of this, leave Russia out of it. But the Wagner Group is a key ally of Hamethi. Uh, the Wagner Group has provided weapons, training, including urban warfare training. They are central in this conflict. They are not peripheral actors. They're in Sudan. They are ruthless. They're well-trained. And uh, the fighting is going to be exacerbated by the presence of the Wagner Group and ensures that Russia would never agree to any sort of UN peacekeeping force. Uh, we have an almost insoluble problem, but we need at least to foreground the need for humanitarian aid in the most urgent terms. Very briefly, because we're out of time, Gaffar Mohamedou Fasayinin, uh, your family, uh, are they, what's their plan? Stay put, move? <sighs> they cannot stay because they will die from shortage of basic necessities. Because you have family in the capital as well as in Darfur. Yeah, in Darfur as well, in capital and other places in the coming days. So everyone is thinking of just, you know, fleeing. But fleeing where? To some safer places, like a chat, like uh, because uh, toward Egypt it's not uh, e that easy, toward other countries, unknown destiny. So the, the, the most likely destination for the Darfurian families of those who are already uh, displaced from their original villages of, to the IDP camps, they have to just think of, you know, getting out of what is coming, you know, in the coming days, because we, we are expecting wars. Our, th our thoughts go out to your, to, to your family. Uh, Gaffar Mohamed Usainin, thank you for, thank for being you with us. I want to thank uh, Eric Reeves. Uh, apologies to uh, Halul Hayer. Uh, it's difficult getting uh, electricity these days uh, with uh, parts uh, in Sudan. Thank you for joining us here in the France 24 debate. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from France 24, uh, a debate on the current security situation in the Republic of Sudan, uh, where over the last two weeks, uh, over 500 people have been killed uh, directly as a result of clashes between the Sudanese armed forces and uh, the rapid uh, support forces uh, headed uh, by Abdel Fattah al-Burhan uh, in regard to the Sudanese armed forces and uh, General Mohamed Hamdin Dagalo, uh, also known as Hameti. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, April 29th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to our program. We're going to listen to another report uh, dealing uh, 
uh, with some aspects of the humanitarian crisis that has developed uh, and worsened uh, over the last uh, two weeks in the Republic of Sudan. What impact does the fighting in Sudan have on Libya? There are fears the conflict could disrupt a precarious situation next door. Libya's war led to a political stalemate that continues to fester. Is Sudan heading the same way? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Tom McRae. The conflict in Sudan is now in its third week. The rival generals are playing the blame game, accusing each other of targeting civilian neighbourhoods, hospitals and people trying to leave the country. Ceasefire after ceasefire has collapsed. Analysts fear powerful regional players may be involved behind the scenes, intentionally prolonging the violence. Some have drawn parallels to the situation in neighbouring Libya. We'll unpack this with our guests in a moment. But first, this report from Nihad al-Abidi. Two generals who can't agree have instead resorted to violence. The rivalry between Sudan's army chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hamati, who leads the rapid support forces, is fueling further involvement of regional and international players. The situation is very bad, actually. The areas of Forces, the militia are occupying the, the, the streets, even some of the houses, even uh, major of the city, very important places, which uh, can't let the people access their, uh, their daily needs. Because there is no moral on this world, there is no great mission in this world. It's only for the power and, uh, and, 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 and money, nothing more. One of the most significant is Khalifa Haftar, a Libyan warlord who is in control of much of the eastern part of the country. He is believed to have close ties to Hamati. Some reports suggest Haftar helped train his paramilitary RSF before the fighting broke out mid-April. Earlier this month, one of Haftar's sons visited Khartoum to donate $2 million to a football club linked to Hamati. Haftar has denied taking sides. But observers have pointed to his order to detain a deputy of Musa Hilal, a known enemy of Hamati. The civil war that began in Libya in 2011 ultimately led to the toppling and killing of Muammar Gaddafi. Sudanese fighters were reportedly involved in the conflict. It divided the country into two administrations, the internationally recognized government of national unity in the west and in the east, a parliament aligned with Haftar. And that discord has fueled instability in the region. Sudan and Libya are positioned on major maritime trade routes for the movement of not only legal but also illegal goods. Inland, the town of Gufra connects Libya, Chad and Sudan by road. Recent media reports quote witnesses saying planes landing at its airport were carrying weapons which were then loaded onto trucks traveling towards Sudan. Hamati and Haftar enjoy support from the same international backers, influential figures in Russia and the UAE. But the similarities go even further, and it's feared that Sudan may be following in Libya's footsteps, as both generals seem hungry for power at any cost. Nihar al for Inside Story.
Well, for more on this, let's welcome our guests today. Uh, in London, Benoit Faucon, Middle East correspondent at the Wall Street Journal in Khartoum. Hamid Khalifa non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. And also in London, Jason Pack, a senior analyst at the NATO Defence College Foundation and author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Thank you all very much for joining me. Benoit, if I can uh, begin with you, you broke the story about Haftar's involvement uh, in the Rapid Special Forces uh, before and uh, since the war has broken out. Can you just give us uh, a little bit more of the detail uh, in your story um, and some specific examples of, of, of his involvement so far? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, the, the historical context being um, that between General Dagalo and uh, General Aftar, there's an history, um, you know, uh, of alliance. Uh, General Dagalo uh, helped, you know, Marshal Aftar uh, in the past mm -hmm. uh, in his failed attempt to take over Tripoli. Uh, they also have a common friend historically, um, which is the United Arab Emirates. Uh, again, General Dagalo helped um, the UAE in its war in Yemen against rebels, and uh, Marsha Aftar was also allied with the UAE. Uh, UAE supported him uh, mm -hmm. in the war in, in Libya. So that's kind of the background, the historical background, which explains why subsequently, uh, when General Dagalo, who is also Hemeti, uh, you know, started the war. Um, he sought help from uh, from Haftar and received ammunition from from the south uh, of Libya into uh, into Sudan. Yes. So what what has happened now? Like in the in the days leading up to the war, how has Haftar been involved in in, in helping Dagalo? Well, he brought ammunition uh, from from the northeast, where his sort of main area of operation is. Uh, into an airport into the south near the Chadian and Sudan border. Uh, and from there, uh, there was an initial flight that subsequently was mostly uh, by land that it was transported um, uh, into Darfur. Uh, and we understand there were, it was obviously detected by a number of foreign powers. Uh, there were drones obviously, uh, you know, flying over Darfur that detected the, the convoys. Um, and there were very strong words, uh, from what I understand, from countries like Egypt, uh, but also from the U.S., about not letting that conflict become a regional conflict with the uh, support of, of uh, neighbors, uh, including General uh, Marshal Afta. So that we understand, uh, General Dagalo got, you know, received a lot of pressure, and so did uh, General uh, Marshal Afta uh, uh, over that uh, that you know, that support. Okay, Jason, what's your reaction uh, to Haftar's involvement? Do you think that this is just the beginning? Well, I want to build on that excellent background that my friend Benoit has explained. I would make yet a further comparison or analysis between Libya and Sudan by saying Sudan is on the same track that Libya has been following just eight years further down the line. What do I mean? There was a popular uprising, civil society activists, it was successful, and then a transitional council and a transitional government trying to move towards democracy. And then what do you know? That all fell apart because of the forces of what I term the global enduring disorder. And this is the era in which it's impossible for Western nations to do collective action. The U.S. isn't doing leadership. And regional powers like the UAE, as we've heard from Benoit, and 
Egypt and Turkey and Qatar are all pulling in different directions. So the interesting twist is, as Benoit explained, that the UAE and Egypt were on the same side in supporting Haftar in Libya, but they're on opposite sides mm -hmm. in the Sudan conflict. And they're pulling in different directions without the West providing any unifying structures. And of course, Sudan is going to be falling apart. Then when you add in the ability to smuggle gold and to smuggle refined petrol from Libya into Sudan, and you have all the makings of a state breakdown and a state implosion. So if you wait some years, you can imagine that Sudan will be like Libya without state institutions, with many different semi-sovereign actors, each with their own little monopolies on violence and smuggling. Mm. I mean, you're in Sudan, obviously, and, and we're glad that you're, you're safe for the moment and we hope that it continues. I mean, you're living through the repercussions of, of all of this. What's the reaction been there to the idea that Hafta is getting involved with uh, the rapid support forces at this point in time? Yeah, uh, I, I would also start uh, just quickly by saying I don't really think that uh, Sudan and, and Libya share the same uh, path or Sudan is going down the Libyan path uh, just a few years uh, later. Uh, the Sudanese political economy is very different to the Libyan uh, political economy and the actors and the context and the dynamics are also very different, but also the way Sudan's transition has been going and now has faced challenges is very different to what uh, was happening in Libya. There are some simil similarities, but I think it's, it's difficult to uh, say that they, they, they're going down the same uh, line. As far as the involvement of Libya or Haftar specifically in the Sudanese context, uh, there have been these worries. Obviously, we know that Haftar's uh, elder son, uh, was, uh, was, was in Khartoum just a few days before the war uh, erupted uh, to, uh, some, for some ceremonial thing where he became an honorary president, uh, president of a football club and donated $2 million. It was all quite bizarre, but he did meet with the leader of Himeti, uh, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, the leader of the Iraq support uh, forces, paramilitary, and so on. So there have been these worries, uh, particularly uh, when, when, when there are growing concerns about the uh, involvement of uh, Wagner in, in Khartoum, and all of that obviously kind of suggests that the theories about, uh, about Haftar being also quite involved and still involved uh, becoming stronger and stronger. But, I don't, but there isn't a strong uh, sentiment or narrative uh, in country in Khartoum uh, around that yet because so far although there are these regional dimensions, but everything that, uh, the way the conflict is out, playing out in Khartoum now is quite localized. All the reasons we understand in, 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 in a very local uh, and, and Sudanese kind of uh, way. But it's important to keep an eye on these regional dimensions. But they have not become a strong worry of the Sudanese people yet, as far as I'm um, aware. I guess I'm just concerned about trying to stay alive uh, day to day. Benoit, what is uh, your reaction, I mean, to, to Haftar's involvement here? I mean, how long-term, how do you think, if he continues uh, to provide, you know, potentially more weapons, uh, fuel, uh, even military personnel, what do you think that is going to do to the conflict? Well, I would say that's a very, it's a proposal, or let's say it's an action, uh, you know, the Libyan sort of faction here intervening in, their, in the war in Sudan, that may not be sustainable. 
because you know it, it has to function. It has always functioned as part of the broader network of alliances, as I mentioned, for instance, the UAE. And to me, it sounds that the, the overall interest of foreign powers, you know, let's say GCC countries, uh, obviously European nations and the US, is really for this conflict not to last. Uh, you know, there's an issue of food security, potentially. I mean, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, you know, have kind of very strong ambitions, uh, you know, either for ports or for, um, you know, for the supply of food for their countries uh, from Sudan. And that's obviously jeopardized if it becomes an entirely unstable country, uh, not to mention the risk of a refugee crisis. Uh, you know, there's too many issues, and I haven't started even with terrorism and the fact that there is a large part of the Nile of the Nile that crosses uh, through Sudan all the way to the north to uh, you know to Egypt. So yes. at the end of the day, the broader you know larger regional interests and international interests beyond local factions in the neighbourhood is really for that conflict to end. Okay, Jason. I mean, just one uh, last point on on Haftar's connection to Dagalo. I mean. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of their, their history? Because obviously they have a very strong shared history, but is there trust or, or any loyalty between the two of them? Well, that's a good point. They do have a shared history. Um, obviously, the Emiratis have paid Hamedti, General Dagalu, to fight in Libya with Haftar. Mm -hmm. And they're both militia groups who tried to overthrow the official state institutions, but had formerly worked within those institutions. It's important to remember that when Hamedti was running the Janjaweed, he was doing so on behalf of the official state institutions. Omar Bashir essentially used him as an outsourced proxy for himself. And Haftar, of course, had been a general for Qaddafi. So they understand these structures from many different perspectives, and they have the same Emirati handlers. I don't think that either of them will put personal loyalty over their transactional desire to win and gain things. And if the Egyptians threaten Haftar, he can switch sides. That's, of course, true. I just want to push back on the idea that our guest from Khartoum has said, which is that the regional dynamic is not paramount in the fighting. If the U.S. and U.K. had wanted to mediate this situation after the 2019 uprising had given massive economic assistance to help the transition to democracy, we wouldn't be in this situation. If there was Western leadership working with, for example, China to make sure that the Russians couldn't play around and participate in gold smuggling, we wouldn't be in this situation. So we're only in this situation in Sudan because the global enduring disorder, the era that we're now living in, promotes conflicts like that civil war in Libya, like the ongoing civil wars in Yemen and Syria. And that's why we're here where we are. Hamid, do you agree with that point, that there's a vacuum being left by the West? Well, I think the West has definitely contributed to the situation that we're living in now. Uh, ever since the uh, revolution took place, uh, they have continued to le legitimize uh, the general, uh, the leader of the RSF and the leader of the uh, armed forces by giving them seats uh, at the table and allowing them to be part of the discussion and also pushing uh, the civilians to accept the partnership with these uh, generals. Uh, and even after the coup that both uh, General Burhan and General Hamidi uh, uh, launched together back in October 2021, the West still did allow them uh, the space and, 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 and gave them the trust, although they never proved 
to be worthy of that. That mm-hmm. is definitely something that the West contributed to. But what I meant by that is that the, the, this, the way these institutions, the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces were created initially, they were created to work against each other. Uh, although they were created to work side by side, but it, essentially they were created to work against each other. Uh, Bashir wanted to protect himself from the armed forces, but also wanted uh, a militia to uh, fight for him. So it, it was going to happen uh, in a way or another, this falling out of their marriage of convenience. It was not going to last, but we did not expect it, uh, or we were hoping it would not be as violent as it has turned out to be. But it, th- these institutions were, you know, built to uh, kill each other in a way. Mm. Um, I know you can't see him, Hamid, but uh, Jason throughout that was uh, giving you the thumbs up. I think he uh, is in, in agreement with most of what you were saying there. That's exactly right. And I think that that was a great way of explaining it. Hamid, thank you. It's that the forces that brought that marriage of convenience together couldn't sustain it because we live in this disordered world where many factions are pulling in different directions. And stupidly, Western foreign policy gave power to the generals without enough threats. These are the sanctions you're going to face. If you if you defy what we've agreed, this is the punishment you're going to have if you derail a transition to democracy. But the lack of of leadership in capitals like London and Brussels and Washington has allowed this splintering whereby regional powers can pick sides and can disorder things. And I I believe firmly that it's not just the Russians, but there are many actors who are happy for this conflict to continue quasi indefinitely. Mm. Benoit, just, just while we're, we're talking um, about the Russians, Haftar has been backed by Russia. I mean, he's hosted uh, Wagner Group at, uh, at his bases in Libya. And uh, as we've spoken about before, Degalo has lucrative gold mining uh, partnerships with the Russian mercenary group. I mean, is there any indication at all that anyone's been able to, to work out that Haftar's involvement in Sudan is backed by Russia, is supported by Russia at this point? I would say at this stage, Haftar didn't need the nudge from, from the Russians. The Russians had their own networks in Sudan, very well established, uh, like, like you mentioned, connected to, to gold exports to, um, to Russia. Uh, a very strong historical uh, relation with uh, General uh, Dagalo Hemeti. Uh, for instance, you know, he, he says himself uh, publicly that, you know, his forces were trained in 2019, you know, um, uh, by, by Wagner. Um, so he didn't need a nudge, but he was approached by uh, by Wagner, I mean, the, the epicenter of Wagner in the region is really right now more in Bangui, the African Republic shares a border with Sudan. Um, so there were very strong, you know, proposal for assistance, uh, but he's been also very nervous by that connection. I mean, both the Russian official connection uh, after the treaty had last year, uh, he, he knows it didn't go well uh, internationally, and the Wagner connection. So he's not going to make it overt. He's not going to make it official. That's too toxic mm. because that is potentially sanctioned, international sanctions on him. Do you, Jason, agree with that point? For sure. Yeah. Okay. Hamid, I mean, just moving on slightly, I mean, outside of trying to negotiate a, a long-lasting ceasefire or, or any sort of peace deal, I mean, what's the mood inside Sudan at the moment in regards to any outside involvement from any of these uh, groups or, or countries? I mean, is it is the thought there that uh, the more involvement from outside, the longer that this war is going to go on? 
Absolutely. I think the general narrative right now is, 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 is you know, aside to, uh, in addition to ending the war now and so on, is ending it in a good time before it allows for more intervention from, from, from regional actors. You know, like I said earlier, I think there is, you know, very documented and, 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 and important uh, and problematic regional interventions in the current Sudanese conflict, in the build-up for it and how it's out there now. But so far, there is no enough evidence of them actively being on ground, uh, or at least it's, it's, it's very limited. And everyone is trying to keep it at this limit and to end the war at, the war at, 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 this, at this limit. Otherwise, if there is more involvement, if there are more powers that are coming to uh, play out some proxy wars in, in, in Sudanese grounds and so on, it's going to be very catastrophic for these people. So they are very, uh, you know, uh, determined to end this now uh, before it turns into that and also before it, beca- it uh, becomes a civil war. So far, it's, it's a power struggle between these two uh, generals uh, and, and the society is not necessarily dragged into that war by becoming an active uh, part uh, or player in that, in, in, in that war. So stopping any uh, militarization of the communities and dragging them into that civil war using whatever ethnic or tribal uh, kind of uh, narratives would, would eventually lead to more regional uh, actors intervening. Everyone is trying to end that uh, immediately before it, it turns into something that spreads across the region and would be very difficult to control them. Yeah. Uh, Jason, you're our expert on Libya. What, what are the ramifications uh, for Libya if this war does continue to drag on and on and, and drag in other players from in the region? Well, I don't think that the implications for Libya are that profound. Libya is already a non-state whereby various militias control the majority of the territory. The central bank governor is allied with Turkey. The head of the National Oil Corporation is aligned with the UAE. It's entirely a penetrated and failed state. If it has another uh, failed state on its border, it doesn't have much blowback. Yes, it's slightly negative. It allows for more smuggling of petrol into Sudan and smuggling of mercenaries from Sudan back into Libya. So it's a minor destabilizing factor. Uh, I think that the global enduring disorder, which we have all around us, is so much more of a factor for Libya than just, you know, another failed state, whether it was Mali before or Sudan now. Um, To go back to that earlier point that we heard from in Khartoum, which is that, you know, it's not a civil war yet. I think it's important to point out that there are ethnic and tribal differences between, say, the supporters of the army who come from the Riverin elite and the North, and then the more uh, peripheral ethnic groups who are connected to the RSF and Hamedti, and you're going to have not only regional powers, but local powers who, to want to win, try to provoke and mobilize their base. So in the absence of global leadership, I don't see how we can't have the Clausewitzian dictum, which is that war inherently escalates to the maximum extent possible. Um, coming into play and this moving more towards a civil conflict, just as we've seen uh, in Libya, where the 2014-2015 war for the Tripoli airport was not 
something that polarized the society. But then the 2019-2020 war was more hitting at social fissures and more intense. So I think we're seeing that dimension play out in Sudan. And unless there's a massive international intervention with strong sanctions and penalties, I don't see how we can get this back on track. Benoit, uh, just before we, we finish up uh, in the next few minutes, do you think that this is going to escalate? Things are going to get worse before they get better? Yeah, if you think about the chess game, you think the escalation is the state of uh, the, you know, the test of strength that each party needs to show before they run out of ammunition or strength, uh, you know, and come to the table. First, you want to show how, how far you can go, almost in a, in a fight to death. Uh, until you, until you're really exhausted and then you go to the table and you, you draw some agreement. But I think you're not there right now. It is, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, uh, ammunition and, um, you know, force on the ground able to fight before they, they get to that point where they feel they need to talk. Uh, Hamid, do you think that, uh, that is going to be the way that this plays out? That the two sides are just going to, fight to the death, like Benoit was saying, or do you think that there has to be international intervention uh, to, to try and bring this to a close? I think the way this is it, it, it's going to play out, both, both uh, generals are not uh, ready to, uh, you know, end this fight yet. So they, uh, pro, uh, should they be, al- uh, be allowed, they will continue the war, they will continue to bring in uh, regional allies uh, and to get them more actively uh, involved. Uh, within the neighboring countries, but beyond as well, more uh, transnational allies, and that would be catastrophic. Uh, however, I think the international community is not acting as as, as quick as possible, but they are starting to act uh, a little bit more now uh, in terms of using the leverage that they have uh, over a lot of these regional allies to end this war now before it escalates into something uh, terrible. On the, in the like, uh, local uh, front and so on, there have been a lot of initiatives, uh, a, a unified civilian front, anti-war civilian front has been established a couple of days ago, bringing together all different political actors, political parties, resistance committees, civil society and so on, to say two message, uh, three messages basically, no to war and no to, uh, you know, all the ethnic and tribal narratives that have appeared now uh, and would risk dragging the whole uh, the whole country into a full-blown civil war and to uh, make sure that, you know, this war, when it ends, it does not also compromise the democratization agenda that we, you know, we want to restore the democratic transition uh, once this war is uh, ends. So there are a lot of efforts uh, internally and externally to uh, hold uh, this war that the general are very determined about taking on uh, until the end. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, we really do hope that this uh, conflict in some way, shape or form can come to an end as, as quickly as possible. Benoit uh, Faucon, uh, thank you. Uh, Hamid Khalif Allah and Jason Pack, thank you very much uh, for joining us on Inside Story today. Well, and thank you uh, too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Tom McRae, and the whole team here. Bye for now. Welcome back.
And uh, that was uh, another report on uh, the current uh, security situation uh, taking place in uh, the Republic of Sudan, uh, where, of course, uh, the two weeks ago uh, there were eruptions of uh, clashes between the two military, dominant military structures inside the country, the Rapid Support Forces and uh, the Sudanese Armed Forces. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 29th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we're going to continue uh, with our coverage of uh, developments uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, where uh, over the last uh, two weeks, uh, there has been uh, fierce clashes uh, between the two dominant military structures inside the country. Let's listen to another report. Two weeks of violence have plunged Sudan into turmoil. Hundreds of people have been killed and tens of thousands have fled. The country is home to more than 500 ethnic groups and is rich in natural resources. Are these factors linked to the conflict? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Tom McRae. Sudan's people are once again living in fear, suffering the consequences of all-out conflict between the army and paramilitary rapid support forces. The cause is multi-pronged. Sudan has a troubled history. Its diverse population is composed of different ethnicities and societal groups, and it is rich in natural resources. We'll be speaking to our panel of guests about how these factors could be influencing the current fighting and Sudan's future. But first, Alex Baird has this report. Two weeks of waking up to the sound of airstrikes and gunfire. Sudanese are caught up in a battle that's been in the making for a long time. A political power struggle rooted in ethnic and regional divisions, further complicated by the fight for control over natural resources such as minerals and oil. At the centre of the conflict are two generals, the head of the army, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hamedti. Both men are known to the African Union fairly well. And this has been going on for quite some years. This is not a conflict that has just, you know, sort of broken out. So I am optimistic that the levers that the AU has together with IGAD is going to yield some results. But it's not going to be a straightforward thing. Sudan has more than 500 ethnic groups, and politics has long been dominated by an elite based in and around Khartoum. Burhan has traditionally garnered support from his fellow Sudanese Arabs, while Hamidti has a significant base among non-Arab ethnic groups in western Sudan, including Darfur. This is partly because he's from a non-Arab tribe, the Mohammed. Both sides have tens of thousands of fighters, foreign backers and vast resources at their disposal. The army controls most of the economy, but the paramilitary group oversees gold mining areas. The country is Africa's third largest producer of the precious metal. And in 2021, about 90 tonnes of gold on the global market came from Sudan. It also has deposits of copper, iron chromium and uranium, as well as abundant arable land which supports the agriculture-dependent economy. Sudan is located on the Nile River, vital for irrigation and hydroelectric power generation. Waters it shares with Egypt and Ethiopia. It borders another five countries, nearly all of which are mired in conflict. The country has strategic ports on the Red Sea, the only points of export for around 135,000 barrels of oil a day most of it from South Sudan. 
Despite this, the United Nations classifies Sudan as a low-income country. If this violence continues, it could spill over and affect regional access to water, mineral exports and oil supplies. And then there's the unfolding humanitarian crisis. The fighting has killed hundreds of people and injured thousands. There's a shortage of food and fuel and hospitals are out of service. Many countries have evacuated their citizens and tens of thousands of people have fled. All of which is putting a better future for Sudanese even further out of reach. Alex Baird for Inside Story. Okay, joining me now are our guests in Montreal, Khalid Madani, Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies and Chairman of the African Studies Program at McGill University. In Cairo, Raja Makawi, Editor of Africa Arguments, a platform for news, investigation and opinion and author of Sudan's Unfinished Democracy. And here in Doha, we have Walid Madibo, the founder and president of the Sudan Policy Forum. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Raja, if I can begin with you, you've just arrived in Egypt after fleeing Sudan. Can you just give us a brief explanation of how difficult that journey was and and, uh, how hard it was to to escape Sudan? It's it's very, very difficult. Um, The reality is that Sudan, uh, or people living in Khartoum, have been kind of Um, under threat of uh, conflict and bombardment for the last um, 15 days or so, are all scrambling to leave uh, Sudan through the, um, you know, through the route they know most and which they're familiar with, with, which is Egypt. So you've got thousands and thousands of people who are on the same route, taking the same, on the same road, taking the same route towards the same kind of um, uh, crossing point. Uh, the situation at the border is is, is very kind of um, uh, uh, difficult and protracted. Um, um, the crossing point itself, Ardeen, is um, um, it's, it's not um, a human kind of you know uh, crossing point. It's a cargo one, so it's not right. set up uh, to receive thousands and thousands of people every day. So um, you've got a situation where people have been kind of squatting for weeks now. I mean, it took me a week to get through uh, with almost no access to um, any basic um, uh, services that people need to maintain themselves. Um, Food is very, I mean, there's no food and water. Mm. Um, um, I mean, there are no bathrooms. Um, The security situation itself is quite dire. Um, and, you know, the state itself, on, at least on the Sudan side, is not, I mean, access to information in order to give you uh, updates on what you need to do in order to get out is, um, is not at the level that is required to help people move on in a, yeah. in a straightforward and easy manner. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine um, the difficulties that you and, and the tens and tens of thousands of other Sudanese have had to go through just to, to, to get to safety. But we are extremely grateful that you and your family are safe at this point in time. Uh, Khaled, I'd like to um, talk to you a little bit about ethnic divisions uh, in Sudan and, and how that might have played a role in the lead up um, to this conflict. I mean, is this simply a war between two generals basically vying for, for power and influence themselves? or? Do you think that there are deeper ethnic divisions to this conflict? 
Um, well, I would say that it is not so much ethnic, but a political crisis, um, of course, reflected in the competition, political and military competition between these two generals. But I think the notion that this is an ethnic conflict is uh, something that's uh, oftentimes, um, you know, uh, not uh, correct. There is no correlation in Africa or Sudan, frankly, if you don't mind me saying, uh, between the density and the number of ethnic groups and, um, uh, and uh, conflict. Um, and so as, as easy it is, as it is to say and reduce this conflict to inter-ethnic conflict, it's, it's just not the case. Um, I would suggest, and uh, my guests, of course, can chime in, that uh, historically uh, the issue in Sudan is an imbalance between the center and the periphery. Uh, that actually gives us a much more, more a better understanding, not only of the present conflict, but also uh, the decades, really, and particularly the last 30 years uh, under the rule of Ahmed Bashir, in which the primary investment uh, of the country, of course, upwards of 60% of the national budget under Bashir went to the military. The remaining went into um, and a very kind of limited geographical triangle um, um, around Khartoum, around the uh, River Rim area. Um, specifically uh, Dungula, Al-Ubaid, and Sinad that uh, Sudanese know uh, full well. And that really had to do with the concentration of power at the state, uh, at the level of the center of the state that dates back to the colonial era. Uh, understanding it that way, that is the conflict, the historical one between center and periphery, can help you understand the conflict between, um, you know, the national army, of course, that is uh, manned by uh, many from the central part of the country, um, and Hemet himself uh, from the so-called periphery, but who does not necessarily represent Present. In fact, he does not represent the majority of Darfurians, as you can imagine. In addition to that, that kind of lens of looking at it from center and periphery vantage point also helps us understand the, the issue and conflict in eastern Sudan, as an example, a very marginalized culturally and politically and economically historically, and what we call the two areas of, of southern Kurdufan and the Blue Nile. Um, understanding it between as a history, a long history of imbalance uh, between center and periphery, both in terms of, uh, um, you know, the absence of representation um, in terms of those in the margins, but also uh, the absence of economic investment and infrastructural investment is really important. I want to conclude that my answer by saying, actually, we also have to understand demographic change. Khartoum itself, the greater Khartoum area, which ha you know, I think houses approximately maybe seven to eight million, I need to check that number, is actually extremely diverse. It's not the Khartoum mm. of the 1950s and 60s. It's a Khartoum that encompasses all of the different ethnic groups. In other words, uh, the battle between these two generals is not hitting one uh, specific ethnic group uh, and another. It is hitting all of the ethnic groups uh, from in the entire country, all of whom have families and relatives in the greater Khartoum area. And I think that's really important to emphasize. Yeah. Well, Eve, what do you make of um, Khaled's points there? I think it's very well uh, said and well put. I just need to add uh, some important uh, uh, points here. There are three levels to this conflict. There is the conflict, uh, conflictual uh, uh, issue, a uh, personality issue between Burhan and Hameti. And there is, uh, and, and at this level, we would have to uh, remember that Hameti was was used by al-Bashir uh, against the army, and, uh, uh, and the Islamists uh, used him as, 
uh, as, as, as a paramilitary force that they could use any time there is a coup d'etat in Khartoum. So there is this level, and there is the second level, which is the, the dynamics, the internal dynamics between the RSF and the Islamist groups, because we have to remember that the Islamists, uh, they, they, they have gotten rid from starting 1989, they started getting rid of the uh, professional officers and they started ideologizing the army itself and uh, uh, gradually they moved all the uh, defense uh, the defense duties to the uh, intelligence uh, department mm -hmm. and when the uh, the civil war erupted in Darfur they they, they used the RSF which was at that time Haras al-Hudud uh, so there is, there is this dynamics uh, at the second level. At the third level, we have to remember very well that the social basis from which uh, General Hemeti has been recruiting uh, his forces are areas uh, of Darfur and inside Darfur, mainly uh, uh, the Arab tribes. Uh, it's only recently that he has started incorporating some indigenously African tribes. So uh, the, the question is, uh, these, uh, I mean, ironically, these are the areas that are mostly rich in Sudan. I mean, if you think about what the professor has just said, uh, I can just add to it that they, in order to, uh, to, to, to grow agriculture in the Sahara Desert of northern Sudan, you need $4,000 uh, per fadan compared mm -hmm. to only $134 in Darfur or Kurdufan. So uh, we, we need to think about uh, marginalization, about center-periphery uh, uh, dynamics, but we can't ignore the fact that there is a historical tension between, from the time of the Mahdiya between the people of Western Sudan and the people of uh, the center here, uh, the people who have, okay. who have dominated the politics for almost... 70 years. Yeah. Uh, um, the Doctors' Union has just put out a statement saying that at least 74 people have been killed in West Darfur and uh, that locals uh, there are now beginning to arm themselves, believing that the conflict is inevitably going to reignite ethnic violence in the area. I mean, how alarming is that, Raja, do you think? And, and, and do you think that that is what is going to happen? I mean, it's quite alarming. Darfur has had a, a long, long history of um, uh, uh, conflict, uh, whose patterns are kind of, you know, shaped by the politics in the center. Again, to, re to reiterate uh, uh, Dr. Khaled's point about kind of, you know, the center uh, periphery kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, framework or lens of, of trying to understand. Uh, how how Sudan functions, but I think it's also very important to kind of look beyond the idea of, ethn of ethnicity as just um, a racial marker. Um, in Sudan, ethnicity is a political construct, one that's been concocted and driven by the state uh, with the purpose of consolidating its power. Um, uh, a central state that's quite weak, whose reach is um, is very limited, has sought to use um, certain kind of ethnic groups in certain parts of the country to try and kind of, you know, uh, uh, manage and consolidate power. Uh, when I think of ethnicity, that's what I think of, uh, okay. not, you know, people's question markers, yeah. Yeah. Khaled, 
I mean, is the worry now that both the army and uh, the rapid support forces are basically going to recruit different groups, recruit dif- different ethnic minor- minorities, basically to, to fight one another on their behalf? Is that what you think could happen? Um, um, I, um, I think that that attempt uh, since the, uh, the, the, uh, the period of Ahmed Bashir, that injection of, uh, of inter-ethnic hatred and even uh, racism on the part of Bashir uh, that he used not only to help to execute his proxy war in, in Darfur, but also to put down uh, the revolution, the pro-democracy forces, the, uh, if you may recall at the beginning of the uprisings in uh, December 2018 and, and, and early 2019, uh, he accused uh, the protesters of being from Darfur. Interestingly enough, um, that was uh, when the slogan Kullina uh, Darfur, um, where all uh, from Darfur really emerged as a popular one. I think, uh, frankly, in Khartoum itself, um, if not elsewhere, there is a clear recognition that uh, this is a political crisis and a political competition between two generals representing their own interest and the interest of a small group of allies. In the case of General Burhan, of course, uh, former members of the National Congress Party. In the case of Hemeti, a small group of uh, of uh, militia. I know that the number is large, but these are paid, and this is what we mean by uh, mercenaries. They're not actually Mm. recruited on the basis of ideology or ethnicity. They're recruited as a result of money being paid. And so I think that generally the Sudanese people absolutely understand that this is not one of inter-ethnic conflict. In fact, that has been tried in the past, and Sudanese are fully aware, and you can see that in Khartoum. I don't see that that is actually going to work. That doesn't mean it's, uh, the violence uh, will diminish or it will be uh, a little bit easier. These are very strong forces. I want to also add to uh, um, uh, Dr. Raga's uh, point in terms of uh, how ethnicity plays out in Sudan. I visited uh, that for many times, even during the war. And I I want to really be very clear. The notion of Arabs versus Africans in that war, which is so uh, popular and so easy as a marker, uh, from our experience and actually, you know, uh, personal and also uh, in other ways in terms of research as well, uh, it is really linguistic markers in that war that count. In, and in addition to that, issues of economic livelihoods. There is no other way to uh, understand the history of uh, intermarriage. Uh, I can tell you a number of different anecdotes when I was there in terms of the relationships between the different uh, ethnic groups that uh, identify based on their linguistic markers, either either originally for or Zarawa or, or Arabic language. So the issue okay. of the pastoralist versus, uh, you know, non-pastoralist agriculturalist is really the primary way that Orients define themselves. It's important because that's the only way we can understand issues of conflict resolution, which are going, are going to be so important. Okay, I, I want to move on to um, Sudan's natural resources, of course, which uh, it has in abundance. is gold, productive farmland, oil, um, all these things we mentioned in the story at the beginning of the program, and, of course, the resources that the Nile and the Red Sea coastline um, throw up as well. Waleed, obviously there's huge foreign interests in Sudan, and there have been for, for many, many years. How is that impacting this current conflict, do you think? Uh, before answering that question, I would want to uh, highlight something very, very, very quickly. I mean, uh, if we look at the conflict from an anthropological or sociological uh, uh, perspective, then what the professor has said is absolutely right. But if we look at it from the political perspective that the, the government, the Islamist group, has ethnicized politics and politicized ethnicity, then we, we look when we look at the IDPs, we find 2.5 
1.5 million from strictly indigenous African population, basically Masalid for Tunjur, Daju, uh, Zagawa. So here is where the conflict takes uh, some sort of uh, uh, an ethnic tilt. But to go back to your question, mm. uh, which is very important, uh, Wagner now with uh, uh, General Himeti, they are doing explorations in, in uh, southern Darfur in the areas of uh, Sangu and Radom. Uh, they, they, they have a very big uh, plot of land uh, from which they are exploring gold and embezzling it to uh, UAE or Russia, and that represents uh, almost 77% of Sudan's export of gold. So here, if we look at the issue of gold, it's a, it's a very sensitive issue. You do have uranium in uh, Jibal al-Nuba, or uh, I would say in uh, uh, Nil al-Azraq, uh, some parts of Janoub Kurdufan. So uh, the, the, that what makes the conflict uh, a little bit dirty is, is the fact that the resources are in the areas that are mostly uh, conflictual uh, ethnicity-wise. I mean, the way that the Islamists have driven uh, the conflict uh, uh, has made it very uh, difficult to separate the, the issue of ethnicity from the issue of uh, resources. Uh, you think, mm. If we think of Jabal Amir, uh, from which uh, Himeti has been exploring gold for years, uh, that belongs to a certain uh, tribe, I mean, quote-unquote, uh, Bani Hussein, that were driven away by uh, some uh, Rizagat groups, and then later uh, the, the Islamists, or basically Umar al-Bashir, they subdivided the Rizagat into Mah Mahriya and Mahamid. So uh, they have played a very devilish uh, uh, role in uh, separating the ethnicities in uh, Darfur, and uh, more importantly, more grievously linking it to the issue of uh, resources. Mm. Raja, obviously Egypt has a huge stake in, in what happens in Sudan, not least because there's tens of thousands of people like yourself and your family that are, that are trying to flee Sudan and, and get into Egypt. What is uh, its interest uh, there at this point in time? And, and where, if any, does President Sisi's allegiance lie? To, to which side? I mean, um, Sudan used to be part of Egypt um, until independence, um, and I think the ties are not just, you know, um, historically mm. social. The communities kind of intertwined through marriage and, you know, um, right to right to move and work and, and whatnot. Uh, but also the political system, Sudan's political system, builds to a large degree on uh, kind of the, the the historical institutions that it that it had uh, inherited from its time being under, from the time it was a condominium and, and being under the protector, a protectorate of Egypt of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of, you know, translated in the more recent period of uh, kind of, you know, a, a problematic political relationship uh, between, uh, um, you know, the two uh, military elites. Um, uh, Egypt, you know, uh, the, the kind of, you know, system, political system, uh, and governance system it has in place, um, yeah. it relies to a large degree on uh, kind of you know securing its southern southern border, and also securing kind of an acquisitions of um, okay. um, Sudan's military elites as well. So yeah. the two systems basically build on each other. Yeah, uh, Halid, 
I mean, who's backing who here and, and why do you think? Which countries are, are backing the army and which are backing the rapid support forces at this point in time? And, and how much influence do they have over both of those sides? Uh, well, I think in the case of Egypt, it's very well known that in general, uh, uh, Egypt is backing uh, Burhan um, as an individual, uh, even if uh, they are opposed to uh, the remnants or rather the, the Islamist uh, uh, former members of the National Congress Party, because obviously Egypt is, uh, is um, you know, opposed to their Islamist movements in Egypt and in the region. Uh, nevertheless, this is a marriage of convenience. Um, Egypt uh, has always wanted a reliable, from their perspective, stable ally. The relationship between Burhan and Sisi uh, is close. Egypt wants that not only for um, strategic reasons, but also for um, economic uh, reasons as well. And of course, the concern for them at the moment is, are the Nile waters and their competition and conflict with Ethiopia. And that, of course, for Egypt is an existential uh, kind of issue. So the relationship uh, with uh, Burhan, they're counting on, and I'm not sure that that's actually a good calculation, uh, that somehow that they could have a complete influence um, over him uh, without having to deal with uh, Islamists of the National Congress Party, many of whom have been released from prison over the last three days, for example. So I think that Egypt is finding itself in a difficult situation in, in that respect. I think historically, as you know, the United Arab Emirates, has assisted and supported uh, Himeti first in 2015 when uh, they utilized him as well as Burhan to send mercenaries to the war in Yemen. Um, and of course, uh, they have uh, interest and have had in terms of the gold trade. There's no uh, question there. That's not a secret. I do think calculations have changed. The end of the war in Yemen, I think the participation of the UAE and Saudi Arabia in the Quad uh, to, uh, over the framework agreement uh, signals a change in strategic kind of perspectives uh, having to do with the fact that instability is something that the UAE, of course, uh, and their ally, uh, Saudi Arabia, is concerned about uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, their interest in the Red Sea area. And, um, and that's why they entered into the negotiations. That's really important. The issue of Wagner and Russia oftentimes is over-sensationalized. I don't believe that Russia has as much influence, um, and I think that my guests uh, can have uh, perhaps different opinions. I do think that uh, the relationship between Gold and uh, the Wagner Group and, and Hemeti is important. I don't think it's uh -huh. the most important. Hemeti has a, a wealth of other resources, uh, and that's really important. All of that is to say that uh, there are changes in the strategic calculations. At the moment, I feel with the, the expansion of this conflict and, and the way that it's threatening uh, the kind of um, strategic interest of all of these actors that had found these, their clients in Sudan previously reliable has, uh, will lead them, from my perspective, and I'd like to hear what the guests here, my colleagues say, uh, we'll have to lead them to actually uh, try to do what they can to stabilize the situation, at least in terms of secession of hostilities. And already okay. we're seeing this statements about the political settlements from these actors. Yeah, we're, we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Um, Raja, I, I want to, to finish with you. Uh, how, how does this conflict end and, and how soon do you, do you think or hope you'll be able to return to Sudan? Um, I'm, I'm hoping so. I mean, my family, like many other families, their lives are in Sudan, um, their houses, and that's where their children go to school. And most of us are, even if we live as diasporas, we are connected 
um, to Sudan in many ways. We, we travel um, yearly once or twice, I mean, more than once. Um, so, yes, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see like a, I'm hoping that the conflict will cease because there is no kind of tangible, long-term, um, kind of um, conducive um, alternative. Um, otherwise, um, we're talking about again um, um, a migration crisis. Uh, mm. How how are, how are people of my parents' generation supposed to kind of exit and leave the country when you know in their seventies? How are they supposed to kind of resettle? Um, so all these questions definitely. Sorry, all of these issues of. of definitely kind of raises concerns about the need for hostility to end and for people to be able to make um, safe passage back to their homes and their lives. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, um, unfortunately, but thank you very much, uh, all three of you, uh, for joining us. Khalid Madani, Raja Makawi and Walid Madibo, thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Tom McRae, and the whole team here, bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, we've been covering uh, the current security crisis in the Republic of Sudan uh, throughout the course of this program. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, We'll take a break and we'll be back uh, with our concluding comments uh, for this week.
folks say Papa never was much on thinking Spent most of his time chasing women and drinking Mama looked up with a tear and said, son, I was a rolling stone. Well, 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 well. Where was your hey, Welcome back, and uh, that was Detroit's own Tempting Temptations with Papa Was a Rolling Stone. We're going to close out uh, with Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane. Uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. <laughs> ¶¶